So we're on the series right now um, called Walking as Jesus Walked, and we took a break last week when um, Jay was here um, just to um, ha- kind of hear what was going on in our group of churches. Um, you can be praying for the guys like Jay that are over lots of churches. That's not an easy job to have. And uh, um, one of the things that, um, that he has to kind of struggle with is, is how do you support 30 churches um, spread out over well, from Langdon, North Dakota, which is about as close as you can get to Canada and Minnesota, um, all the way um, to um, western Montana. Um, but it was great to have him here. Um, he just loves to be able to support the local church. So thank you also. Um, they always feel very blessed by this congregation and, uh, and very encouraged by this congregation. They appreciate all of your prayers and, and uh, just appreciate the support that they've gotten um, from this church over the years. Um, so the series that we're on, really the inspiration for it comes from uh, both uh, our desire to really think about what does it look like for us to be disciples of Jesus. And that's biblical language for um, what does it look like for us to, um, to really put our faith in Jesus, but then also to grow in our walk with Jesus. And, uh, and so to be a disciple of Jesus. But then also in Scripture, in 1 John 2, 6, it says, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which Jesus walked in the same way that he walked. And so there's this challenge is, is that Jesus lived this life, and, it, and not just as an example, he's, he's, he's not just an example, he's also Savior and Lord, um, but what does it look like to really identify with Jesus? And that's one of the cool things about baptism is, is when we put our faith in Christ and we're baptized, we're really saying is, is that we're identified with Christ and we're baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit. And so what does it look like to identify with Christ, not just in salvation and saying that, you know, we're trusting him as our Lord and Savior, but also in our everyday life. And so in the same way, literally means as, to walk as Jesus walked. So the first week we talked about having the same heart and the same habits of Jesus, And then over the next couple of weeks, we talked about total dependence on the Holy Spirit. And the Sunday before last, we talked about prayer, and we looked at the prayer life of Jesus. And this week, we're going to talk about obedient living. Now, Jesus is our example of what it looks like to live obediently. But it's good for us to think about why would we even want to consider being obedient to God's Word and ultimately to God. This is something that I've thought about for a long time even when I was a relatively young man. I grew up in the Catholic church, um, but really we didn't go very often. I went to Catholic school um, when I was in junior high for the first time. um, My dad's business partner went to an evangelical church, and so when she would watch us, um, she not only was the business partner, but she was like grandma to us, and um, she would watch us whenever my parents went out of town and on one particular Sunday, she was watching us, and so we went to the evangelical church, and I heard about this camp in eastern Montana called the Eastern Montana Bible Camp. And I went home and asked if I could go, and they said yes. And it's at that camp, for the first time, I heard what really made sense to me, um, is that apart from God, we will, um, we will be characterized by our brokenness, and by our sin. But that God has the solution that we can't find our own, and that solution isn't a thing to do, but rather a person to follow, and that's Jesus. 
and that he lived the perfect life that we can't live, but he lived that perfect life and then he gave himself on the cross as a sacrifice for sin, our sin. And that made total sense to me. I mean, growing up in eastern Montana, you know, Montana kind of is what it is. And so you grow up in this rugged individualism where there's, um, there's lots of that individualism, that me kind of thinking, and lots of alcohol and, um, and lots of other stuff. And when I first heard um, that, it, that we need to not just believe in God, but that we need to trust God, and that that looks like repentance, it made total sense to me. Because everywhere around me, I could see brokenness and sin. In fact, I can't even count the number of suicides anymore. At one time I did. I can't even remember the number of suicides that there were among the young people in Glendive. And uh, in my first experience of it was in the seventh grade when one of my friends committed suicide. And just the utter brokenness that was around me, lots of alcoholism, lots of fighting, um, lots of anger and hurt, lots of sexual brokenness, all kinds of things. And so when I heard what I heard, it just made sense. I have no problem believing in sin. None at all. And none of us really do when we really think about it. But we kind of like to avoid that subject. And then when we talk about obedience, um, it's important for us to really think about what that means. A number of years ago, I started reading the writings of Eugene Peterson. One of his books is called A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. I bought it because of the title. I do that with a lot of books. Some of them I actually read once I get into them. <laughs> so, but this one was interesting. Um, What's really interesting is that the title was inspired by Friedrich Nietzsche. And if you know anything about Nietzsche, he was not a fan of Christianity at all. He's probably one of Christianity's greatest critics. And yet, he saw at least one thing with great clarity. He wrote, The essential thing in heaven and earth is that there should be a long obedience in the same direction, that thereby results and has always resulted in a long run, something that made life worth living. And Eugene took this um, quote and he said, it is this long obedience in the same direction which the world does so much to discourage. He said, people are submerged in a culture swarming with lies and malice and they feel as though they're drowning in it. They can trust nothing they hear. They depend on no one they meet. Such dissatisfaction with the world as it is, is preparation for traveling in the way of Christian discipleship. The dissatisfaction coupled with the longing for peace and truth can set us on a pilgrim path to wholeness with God. One would think that he actually wrote this last month. I was with him the year before he died, and I could still sense that dissatisfaction with the world. And um, I could also tell that, um, that uh, he was starting to lose his memory and starting to 
um, not be as good with words, and he was phenomenal with words, but a dissatisfaction with the world and its ways. Again, one would think that he wrote this last month because, I mean, it's kind of messy out there, isn't it? We have a lot of political chaos. There's a lot of conflict. Um, There's COVID. There's all of that kind of stuff. Well, he wrote this 42 years ago. And 42 years ago, he articulated what most of us are feeling today. A person has to be thoroughly disgusted with the way things are, he writes, to find the motivation to set out on the Christian way, to get fed up with the way things are. Obedience is actually something that's very hard to talk about, in part because none of us are really good at it. It's also hard to talk about without becoming abusive or legalistic, without coming up with a list of rules for people to follow, and then on the flip side, a list to punish people with. Obedience, though, should be the joyful endeavor and pursuit of every believer. It should be something that we so want and so desire because of the blessings that it brings into our lives. And that's one of the things that's really important for us to understand is is that obedience brings blessing. It brings the goodness of God. Now, is it difficult? Absolutely, it's difficult. Is will we struggle to know what it looks like? Yes, at times we will struggle to know what it looks like. But it's not something that we should be beaten with. Rather, it's something that we should be blessed with. And so it should be the joyful pursuit of every believer. But often, it's a rule by which we find out how big of a failure we are. And that's exactly what I want to push back against. So the purpose of this message isn't to make us feel bad. It's not to point out our failures. Rather, I would love to inspire us to pursue God's goodness in our lives and even to inspire a desire to live out God's goodness in our family situations and work and world. And so Jesus is our example. It's hard to live up to the example of Jesus, isn't it? Yes is the word of obedience. And there's a sense in which obedience is God's love language. Kim reminded me of this um, between services. She was, th- when, I, when I said that, um, she had just such a great memory of when our boys were little um, because occasionally we would say something and their response would be, okay, which meant, I really don't like that idea, but I'm going to do it anyway. And uh, so we'd often be over at the Provichex house, which is one of their favorite places in the world. And, and we'd say, okay, guys, it's time to go. And they would say, okay. And we always wondered if tears were going to come next. Um, but okay, meaning I don't know if I like that, but I'm going to do it anyway. But yes, yes is the word of obedience. And there's a sense in which obedience is God's love language. Jesus always and only said, yes, Father. Not my will, but yours be done. 
And that's really amazing to think about, and it's also a challenging example. We think that it was easy for Jesus to be obedient. After all, he was God. Can you imagine being one of Jesus' siblings? In Mark chapter 6, we're told that Jesus was rejected by his own community. That's literally, he's in his own neighborhood, and he is rejected. They ask, isn't this Mary's son? And the brother of James, Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And the passage goes on to say that they were offended by Jesus. Can you imagine being one of Jesus' siblings? What was it like to grow up with Jesus? I mean, if you're marrying Joseph and you discipline Jesus, you're wrong. What would it have been like to be Jesus' brother? Can you imagine Mary saying, why can't you just be more like Jesus? Well, what would Jesus do? There are seven times in Scripture where Jesus' family is mentioned. And at times it seems like they, they either want to come and collect him and restore him to his senses. Or at other times they send him away. In John chapter 7, they tell him to leave Galilee and to go to Judea. Hey, if you go to Judea, you can perform miracles, your miracles there. After all, no one can be famous in secret. And there's a sense in which they're both mocking him and wishing that he would just go. Why? Well, can you imagine what it was like to be Jesus' brother? Anything you do pales in comparison to Jesus. After all, what would Jesus do? So what was it like to grow up with Jesus? Do you think that Jesus ever got hurt while he was playing outside? In the show, The Passion of Christ, Mel Gibson takes a little bit of liberty with Scripture, and there's this, um, there's this place in the film where Jesus is carrying the cross to Golgotha, and he falls down on his knees, and then he looks up, and he sees Mary, and then there's a flashback to when he was a kid, and he's running, and he falls, and he skins his knee. Do you think Jesus ever skinned his knee? Did he ever get upset? When and why? After all, getting upset isn't necessarily a sin. In fact, in Scripture, we're told that he did get upset. Did he ever make a mistake? Now, that's one to think about. We're told that he was a carpenter. Do you think he ever cut one leg on the table a little too short? And that's a mistake, isn't it? Not sin, but a mistake. Did he ever perform a miracle while growing up? There are some writings outside of Scripture that say yes. I would tend to say no. Those those writings outside of Scripture always make it a real fantastical experience. You know, a bird on the playground gets injured, and so he grabs the bird and he heals it, and it flies off. But those aren't the kind of 
miracles that we see in Scripture. Did he ever question what to do next? And if he did, or if he didn't, then why did he spend so much time in prayer? Why over 45 times in the Gospels did he pull away to pray? Why did he spend the whole night in prayer before choosing his disciples? Was it necessary? Did he ever have a bad day spiritually when his father seemed far away? In Psalm 69, verses 7 and 8, it's David writing, but we actually wonder is, is if this isn't the feeling of David, but if it also points to Jesus. Verses 7 and 8 say, For I endure scorn for your sake, and shame covers my face. I am a foreigner in my own family, a stranger to my own mother's children. It's what we call a messianic passage. Because there's David, and we, we think that David really did feel these things, but they, smoked, they spoke so much, like it was actually Jesus, that, that we think is, is that, that there's David that's feeling these things, but it's really speaking the heart and the mind of Jesus. Because Jesus is the better king. He's the better savior. And these are very likely pointing to Jesus, even more so than David. It would be easy to think that it's easy for Jesus to be obedient all of the time and always, because after all, he is God. But it seems that Jesus, when he left heaven and took on flesh, that he also took on the needs of the flesh as well, along with its limitations. He endured the mistreatment of others. He could catch a cold. He could fall and skin his knee. Other people could look down on him and make fun of him and even question his goodness. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all tell us that Jesus was directly tempted by Satan. In fact, all three temptations were cast in the light of his humanity, his need. One might even argue that they're the great temptations that we all face. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And so Jesus was tempted, Scripture tells us, in, in every way that we are. And yet without failure, he resisted temptation. Philippians 2 opens up a window to eternity past. In fact, it's almost like we can see up into heaven and we can see what God is doing. And so we can see this picture, this window into God's purposes. And it lets us see a glimpse of what happened when Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, the passage begins in an interesting way because the Apostle Paul is encouraging the church in Philippi. And he says, therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit... If any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and one in mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking out to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. 
in your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. And it's so interesting because Paul starts this passage and he, 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 he's telling them is, is, hey, really focus on doing things in this way. And, and then he says, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. And, and, and it's almost as though Jesus had this kind of a mindset. And so you have the same mindset and be like-minded. Have the same love. Be one in spirit and one of mind. Have the same mindset of Christ Jesus. And then he goes on to explain more about what that kind of mindset looks like. And he says, Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. You think even to be used to his own advantage? What were were the temptations of Satan? Use your status. Use your power. Use... Use the, the authority that you have to call the angels. And yet, he did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Wow, that goes against the American way. Using all of the resources that we have to our own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. At the end of this passage, Paul says in verses 12 and 13, Therefore, when you see a therefore, there's always something before the therefore that's really important, and that's everything that we just read. And there's some bookends that we see in here. And so the front end, of the, the, the bookend at the front and the bookend at the back are really important. He says, therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and act in order to fulfill his good purpose. And so the bookends have the same mind as Christ. And then as you have obeyed, continue. Does it mean that they were perfect? I don't think that that's what's intended. But it's as you're, as you're growing in obedience, as you're, as you're continuing the process of obedience, continue all the more. But it starts with having the same mind as Christ. And, and then out of that mindset, the, the mindset of Christ that we continue in obedience Otherwise, as we learn from the example of Jesus. So earlier I said, yes is the word of obedience. And obedience is God's love language. Jesus always and only obeyed his father's desires. Jesus always and only said, yes, father. Not my will but yours be done. What an amazing thought and a challenging example. Jesus' obedience means that he entered into his Father's kingdom agenda. Jesus made it clear that he did only what pleases his Father. 
In John 8, 28 and following, Jesus said to his disciples and those who were listening, and they didn't understand this, but he said, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, and that's an image of the cross, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own, but speak just what the Father has taught me. The one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do what pleases him. And that's, that's, such, a, that's such a beautiful thing to think about is, is it, and it could literally be a prayer in, in our lives. Because it says, I do nothing on my own. What would it look like to actually pray is, is hey, Father, I don't want to do anything on my own. Because when I do stuff on my own, it usually doesn't turn out so good. I mean, I, I try to do this stuff, and, and then that stuff that's inside of me comes out, and sometimes in really negative ways, and it's just not good. And so I want to do what you would have me do. And so, Lord, I don't want to do anything today on my own. I want to do what pleases you. And I wonder what that would look like in everyday life. What would that look like in our workplace? What would that look like in our family situations and in our community? Because it sounds like that that was the kind of prayer that Jesus would have prayed Lord, Father, I don't want to do anything without you. It's interesting because Moses, I just remember this literally just now, is, is Moses, when he was leading the people of Israel, that sometimes was a really not fun job. And so he's leading the, the people of Israel, and you know, they're like he goes up to the mountain and comes back, and they're worshiping a golden statue. And, uh, and he's like, Lord, what did you do? Why did you give me this job? This job is terrible. I mean, these people, they're, they're awful. I mean, I go away, come back. They're worshiping a statue. And, uh, and God says, well, I'll just kill them all and put you in charge. We'll build a whole new nation from you. And he's like, what are you crazy, God? Sometimes I think that God kind of jokes around with us a little bit, kind of so that we can realize the consequences of our complaining. And, and Moses is all of a sudden like, what? Hey, it's bad enough being in charge of people, but, you know, making a whole group from me? I mean, what if it turns out the same way? And God, what will the nations around us say? If, if you just wipe out your nation... I mean, they'll say that you led us into the wilderness to slaughter us, and that doesn't sound like a very good idea, God. And God's like, oh, oh, yeah. Yeah, Moses. Thanks for understanding. And then Moses says, Lord, I just want to see you. I just want to know that you're going to go with us. Because if you're not going with us, if you're not going to lead us, and I don't want to go anywhere, 
I don't want to do anything without you. And then there's this whole picture of God saying, you can't see me because if you were to see me in all of my fullness, you would die. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to place, place you in the cleft of the rock and, and from there you can see my shadow as I'm going by. And, and Moses gets to see God going by and, and it's so marvelous. And, and Moses' cry is, God, I just want to be close to you. God, I just want to follow you. I don't want to do anything without you. And it's really this, this beautiful picture that all of us in our complaining, we, we complain and say, God, why are you doing this? And God, why are you doing this? And we should just be saying is, God, I don't know what you're doing, but I just want to do what you're doing. And I want to be a part of it. And I don't want anything else. And the most beautiful picture of that in Scripture is Jesus, to the extent is, is that I don't want to go to the cross, but I do want to be on your plan and on your kingdom agenda. And if that means going to the cross, then not my will, but your will be done. So Jesus' ultimate act of obedience was the cross. Trevin Wax, who's a pastor and writer, says, Imagine the humility it took for Jesus to die there. Here he was, nailed to a cross by soldiers whom he created. He was raised up into the sky on beams of wood from the trees that he made. He looked into the eyes of the people who killed him, and he knew their names, their histories, their destinies. The creator was slain by his creation. The shepherd was slain by his sheep. Talk about obedience unto death. The creator of life submitted to death. This was the ultimate humiliation. And here in Philippians chapter 2, where we've been reading, Paul is saying, This is God. This is what God is like. Rethink everything that you've ever thought about God and his power and majesty and watch this dying man nailed to a tree, gasping for breath and see in his death the God of self-giving love. Caesar ruled by putting people on the cross. Jesus ruled by putting himself there. In Hebrews 5, 7 through 9, it says, During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Son, though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered and was made perfect. He became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. That picture of learning obedience from what he suffered, I didn't explain this in the first service and had a question about it. That doesn't mean that he was disobedient. Rather, it's, it's that purifying by fire, by suffering, that greater purification. And that in his suffering, that the one who was already perfect 
was becoming that example of obedience and perfection and that even even then there was a purifying and a perfection not because he needed it but because it glorified God. Our call to live lives of Christian obedience happens in the context of him who was obedient for us. We are to find out, Ephesians 5, find out what pleases the Lord. In Ephesians 5, 8, it says, For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of the light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. Find out what pleases the Lord. You know, I could have started this message with all of the don'ts that are found in Scripture. You know, don't do this and don't do this. And if you do these things, then, then obviously you're terrible. I could have started out that way. But I didn't want to start that way. Now, I believe that all of those things are important and they're even beautiful in their context. And when we're asking that question, what does it look like to find out what pleases the Lord? We have to remember that this is the revealed word of God. And the amazing thing about it is is that God God worked in in such a beautiful and a special way that that he, he chose to have these 12 disciples who would follow Jesus. And out of those first witnesses, many of them disciples, and then later a few other witnesses, is that God worked in them to the extent that they felt compelled to tell us the story of Jesus. And so we have, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and and the other writings in the New Testament. and, And somehow, God put their personality into their writings. And so we can actually see distinct personality in their writings. But at the same time, it's not just them because they were inspired by the Holy Spirit to write down what they wrote down. Is that literally the Spirit of God spoke in such a way as to move them to write. And so we not just have the words of Matthew, Mark, Luke, Paul, John, Jude, a brother of Jesus. We don't just have their words. We have the word of God because the Holy Spirit moved them. And so when we want to find out what pleases the Lord, we look to Scripture. And then we're also told is is that we can't even rightly understand Scripture apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. And so so we pray and, and we ask God to to help us to understand. And we're told that the Holy Spirit, first, when we become saved, the Holy Spirit removes a veil that's over our eyes where we can't see God clearly. So you can know a lot about God, but you can't know God apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. So it's even the work of God, even for you to even be able to know him. So that veil is removed, but then also is that the Holy Spirit helps us to understand scripture. And when it talks about, you know, it talks about what we're to do, it's all of that. Hey, when you live in the love of God. Even obedience is a blessing. Not a curse. Not a weight. But a blessing. 
and I'm getting off track. Jesus clearly understood what it takes so long for many of us to discover. Jesus knew that the question was not, what do I want to do? But what does my father want me to do? Jesus knew that life presents two choices. We can either follow the world's agenda, which includes living for ourselves, or we can choose to always and only follow the kingdom agenda of the Father God. And I ask this question, can we do it? Can we do it? And the answer is no. Not without the grace of God. Andrew Murray says, what the law demands from us, grace promises and performs in us. It's a little complicated. The law deals with what we ought to do. Whether we can or not, and the law to some extent or another appeals to to legalism and to fear. But love stirs us up to do what we typically would not be able to do. The law gives no real strength, which is why in the Old Testament it said is that the people actually could not fulfill the law. Which is why we need Jesus, because only Jesus could fulfill every part of the law. And so he did what we cannot do. The law reminds us that no matter how strong we think we are, that the law only leads to failure and condemnation. Grace points us to what we cannot do and offers to do it for us and in us. And so once we put our faith in Jesus... We lean into our walk with him. We depend on the Holy Spirit to bring about and to affect the kind of love that brings change into our lives. Grace is the foundation by which we obey God. It's out of his grace that we say, God, I can't do anything without you. I need you, and I want to follow you, and I want to be obedient to you because I love you. The greatest kind of obedience is that which comes from love and is an act of worship. And that starts when we submit our lives to Christ. And it continues as we daily submit our lives to Christ. He's the example. And he's given us the Holy Spirit. And when we flip the question from what do I want to do to what does my father want me to do? Then we say no to the world's agenda and we say yes to God.
And we begin to choose to always and only follow the Father's kingdom agenda. Like Jesus praying, I can do nothing on my own. For I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. And we do it together. And we won't be perfect, but we have one who is. And we don't live in the shame of our imperfection. We live in the beauty of his perfection. Being inspired to live out his goodness in every way. And then when we read scripture, we don't see the burdens of the do nots. We say the blessings of what we're invited into. Let's pray. Father and Lord God, you are so good and you're so gracious. And Lord, my prayer is, is that none of us would feel the guilt of our sin in the way that we would apart from Jesus. But we would see and feel the blessings of forgiveness that can only come through him. Father, in the book of Acts, where it says that the people were cut to the heart and said, what should we do? And Peter said, repent and believe. It's so important, if you haven't put your faith in Jesus, it's not easy, but it is simple. It's just saying, I'm sorry, Lord, that repent, I'm sorry, Lord, for my sin. And that's believing. I believe that there's forgiveness. I believe that there's healing. And I believe that Jesus is the one that made that possible. So it's just that, I'm sorry. I believe. I'll follow you. And if you've never done that, it's just that easy. And in whatever way that you want that and want to, you can pray that back to the Lord. I'm sorry. Forgive me. I want to follow you. Father and Lord God, thanks for your grace and your mercy. Be with us, Lord, as we go out into another week. In the name of Jesus, amen.